Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and with me in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you today? I'm relaxed and uh, I'm really excited to speak with today's guest. Yes, in today's episode of Investing by the Books, we have the great pleasure of speaking to Derek Lido. Derek has a PhD in applied physics, has been the CEO of a public semiconductor company before starting his own company and selling it for 100 million US dollars. Since 2011, Derek is a professor teaching entrepreneurship at Princeton, and he is the author of three books, The Startup Leadership, Building on Bedrock, and now his latest title, The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value, which we will talk about today. What is the book about? What we learn early from reading the book is that uh, entrepreneurs have have really shaped our current society and and will shape our future. And uh, this book takes a historical perspective, looking at the past 9,000 years of entrepreneurship and tries to answer the question, what is a good entrepreneur? And to understand the consequences of entrepreneurship for us as individuals and as a society. And we believe this is highly relevant for investors because we think it helps with understanding the durability of, of businesses. And uh, I mean, if, if they don't uh, treat the, the, um, the employees, the, the, uh, uh, I mean, the other stakeholders of the business, then uh, it, uh, we don't think it will be dur- durable, which has huge implications for the value, of course, of the company. Definitely. And how does the book relate to our quality rating that we use here at Red Eye? So the book is about entrepreneurs, which uh, of course is an important aspect of our people rating. Because I mean, I mean, it's 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 not only about starting a business. It's it's about uh, intrapreneurship as well. That that the the people in the business can can start new business areas and so on. And I think the that part of entrepreneurship is a bit underappreciated and and in- interesting to to think about. And as Richard Lawrence said in episode twenty five. The businessman made the business, and um, at the same time, the the business rating, including the products and the competition, is also vital to understand the success of entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs is published by Columbia Business School Publishing, and was released in digital format in September 2022. And the hard copy hard copy is actually published on November 15, so today this episode is released, and we are thrilled to have the author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Derek Lido. So hello, Derek, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Eddie, glad to be with you. Thank you for taking the time. Where are you today? I'm in New York City. So it's a bright, bright fall day here. Is it a home office or where are you? Uh, yes, yes. Um, this this week uh, the university is is on holiday, so I'm not down not down in Princeton. I'm up in New York. I see many nice books there in the background that we will probably touch on on later, and we will also go go deeper into your career uh, later in the conversation. But to begin, how how did your passion for business and entrepreneurship begin? Well. Business and entrepreneurship are, are, are two different things. Um, my, I, I actually was destined to be a scientist uh, in, in school and um, went to, to graduate school and got my PhD in, in applied physics and uh, had opportunities to be a professor at that time. 
And right at the last moment, I decided that being having a career in a laboratory with just a limited number of people around would be too confining. And so I, I went and told my professor that I really wanted to work out in industry uh, and have a bigger, broader impact than I could uh, writing academic articles on theoretical physics. My professor wasn't happy about that. He didn't talk to me for a couple of weeks, but, uh, but, but I went into industry. I went into established companies and I worked in, in their laboratories, but, uh, was uh, picked out, uh, for having, uh, qualities that would make me a good manager. And so, uh, so ultimately, uh, my career went into management fairly quickly out of the laboratory. And I rose in the semiconductor industry ultimately to be the CEO of a large global uh, publicly held semiconductor company. And I did that uh, very successfully for um, about five years uh, until I, I, I got this idea on something that I felt needed to be done for the semiconductor industry. And I, I tried getting other people interested in, in doing the idea, but nobody would. So I literally put my money where my mouth was. And I went and I retired as a successful CEO. And I started a company literally from scratch that was just me and, and, my, and my, you know, personal assistant sidekick and uh, and we started a company from scratch to provide this information to the first semiconductor world and then to the entire tech world that they couldn't get. And I knew as a CEO that I wanted that information and I would pay a lot of money to get that information. And um, people didn't think it was possible to get that information, but I felt I knew how and I was able to get the information and um, and then ultimately grew that company from scratch into a big global player uh, that, that was the leader in providing all this insight into what was happening in the technology value chain around the world. And we had offices around the world and analysts around the world and, uh, and if, we were the go-to people, you know, to figure out what was happening in the whole technology space. Ultimately, a very large company, I think the largest market research company on the planet today, uh, came and, and uh, basically said, um, we need to own you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so what, what will it take? And so... They, they were a very good company, and uh, so we were, we were able to reach a, a good, satisfactory deal. That's fascinating. Can you, can you tell us some more about I mean, how it was for you leaving a well-paid CEO job and, and start your own business? Well, so I had been in the semiconductor industry for you know, uh, 23 years uh, at that time, 
And I had been in the semiconductor industry uh, through its golden age. So I, I, I had done well. I, I had a lot of valuable stock options. I had been the CEO and paid very handsomely. The company had done extremely well under my leadership. And um, so, so I didn't have to worry. So, so I had a lot of, uh, let's say, unfair competitive advantage in, in doing my startup. I, I was well-recognized and highly respected in the entire field. And uh, so people would take my telephone calls. I knew, I knew what I wanted to create would be something other CEOs wanted. Uh, I mean, I could talk to them and say, hey, would you like this? And they would say, yeah, well, but I don't know where you're going to get that. Find that information. Uh, so, so I had that going for me, and then, and then I had been very successful financially, you know, as being an important person, and then the leader of a you know very successful global semiconductor company. So, so I didn't have to worry, you know, about sending my kids to college if the if it didn't work out. Um, and I had enough money to to seed the idea. Of course, it never goes exactly the way you expected, but uh, but it did work out and um, and was you know, very successful and and had a very large impact on the, um, the the electronics world because the information that we provided um, gave visibility that uh, uh, that smoothed out the boom and bust cycles in the industry. So this that that's what I wanted to do was to give this advanced visibility of where things were in the value chain and um, and I succeeded and that worked and the company was extremely successful. Congratulations! I mean, really fascinating story. And uh, I mean, uh, what what you say is a bit counterintuitive for me because maybe it's a myth but what I hear is that entrepreneurs should really be able to I mean they should risk it all more or less cut off all the lifelines and, and do do what you're aimed to do but uh, yeah uh-huh. can, exact burn, yeah, burn your, bridges. your bridges can you tell us a bit about that is it a myth or yeah that is a myth that is a myth um, so in the world today there are about a billion uh, entrepreneurs uh, the vast majority of them can't can't afford to risk everything. Uh, they'll starve, uh, or th- they'll be, um, you know, considered outcasts in in their various cultures. So, for, so the Silicon Valley model of of entrepreneurship, w- which gets all the attention, which is basically shoot for the moon, use other people's money, and fail fast. So those, those are the three things that you keep in your mind uh, if, you're, if you're going high risk. Let's go for it. And, uh, and that model is, has proven very successful for helping companies grow as fast as they can and uh, get as big as they can. Um, but, but it's a very, very small fraction of the number of companies that are formed. In the U.S., on average, um, you'll get about 800,000 companies formed in a year. Uh, about 
2,000 of those will get venture capital funding. Uh, maybe 75,000 will get some angel funding. You know, but, but the vast majority are funded by loans on the home or on your credit cards. But more importantly, they're, they're, they're funded by internal profits that people invest back in. And they therefore grow slower than a VC-backed company. But, um, but in many cases, they're a lot more likely to, to succeed and, and last a long time. And um, you have written a book now on uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, you have written two books before, but, but this book is, is called uh, The Entrepreneurs. And uh, I, I found it to be a really fascinating uh, read um, with, uh, I mean, it, you took a lo- lot of lessons from, from history. And yeah, I want to ask, what, what led you to write the book? Well, um, when, when, when that large company came and bought uh, my, my, my startup, it was already 11 years into it, but um, I, I was soon thereafter invited by Princeton University to come teach entrepreneurship. They were expanding. There were a lot of students interested in it. They wanted to, somebody who had experience to be part of their, their teaching uh uh, staff for entrepreneurship, and and I was uh, you know flattered that they asked, and very happy to to go and uh, start teaching entrepreneurship. What, 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 when I did that, uh, I, I wanted to. F- I was interested. I was intrigued by what what really is known about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, I wish I. I had access to those books. I mean, I, I read books on entrepreneurship, but they were mostly books by entrepreneurs describing their own personal successes. And I felt each one of them was really not, not broad enough, not, not general enough to really be helpful in the situations I found myself in. So, so as, as part of coming to Princeton, I've, I've, focused and dedicated. My mission has been to help people be successful, particularly entrepreneurs, by telling them what actually really works and what doesn't work. And this is my my third book on the on that subject. I, I, I think if you read all three books, you'll find that I wrote them in reverse order. <laughs> okay. But that, that, that's just how I delved into it. Um, my first book called Startup Leadership is, is actually how you grow a, an idea into a self-sustaining company. Okay. So it's for somebody who already sort of has the German of the idea, idea, wants to know how to hire people, wants to know how to, you know, um, motivate and, and, and make a high-performing team and, and what really works there and what doesn't. My, my second book, uh, Building on Bedrock, really was a, a dive into what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and how to prepare for that. And it was, it was talking to people that, that were, were thinking about being an entrepreneur or just about to you know, had recently started and it was 
what are the facts of the matter? What really can help you prepare? What, what will matter? And then this book, so, so in writing those two books, I, I, I was still troubled <laughs> by whether or not our current forms of entrepreneurship are really sort of the end point or are we just passing through a phase? And there's no way to get at that unless you, you take a big picture, a big historical picture, and find out how you got here in the first place. So, so I looked, read all the books I could on, you know, entrepreneurial history and the like, and found out that all of them basically end a couple of hundred years ago and just assume that the modern age is the only age of entrepreneurship and that's it. I, I didn't believe that that was true <laughs> and basically worked for seven years trying to find the roots of entrepreneurship, not just in, in America, which of course isn't going to go back much, well, you would have thought wouldn't go back much before 250 years, but uh, it, all over the world. And, and that required a lot of digging, sometimes literal digging in archaeological sites and, and through museum collections. And, and I, I was shocked what I found. I, I, I was blown away. And here it is, you know, so I, I had been studying entrepreneurship already for many years, right? So I, I, and, and I knew that people, you know, felt that this was an important aspect of society. Uh, but they, they, they felt it was a, it was a modern manifestation. I mean, entrepreneurship is, is what modern tech people finally have, have understood. And I go back and I find unmistakable entrepreneurial activity. You can't dispute this among hunter-gatherers in, in, in all parts of the world as, as cultures are, are emerging and forming. You, you find absolute evidence that there were entrepreneurs there and that they played a vital role in, in the creation of these cultures. We're talking about hunter-gatherers, you know, 9,000, 10,000 years ago. So Stone Age cultures, you know, uh, are entrepreneurial. <laughs> so, so, so we have it backwards, you know, we think this is a modern thing. No, it's a primal thing. It, 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 it causes, it helps form cultures, not that cultures help form entrepreneurs. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, that just led to all these other findings about how entrepreneurship has took root, how it evolved, how it impacts our society in ways that, that even, even, you know, a scholar on entrepreneurship didn't realize. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, just before we go deeper into some of those stories, uh, I would like to ask you about the word entrepreneurship and just to define that, because in the book you write that uh, the word entrepreneur has hundreds of definitions. It is overused and now can mean anything. So so what is your definition? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I had to basically create a definition that could apply to entrepreneurs through all times. If you look in a dictionary, the, you know, the common definition will be something about a person who starts a company. But a companies, companies didn't exist a few hundred years ago. They're, they're, they're a modern concept. So we're, we're, we're necessarily anchoring in the dictionary that word to, to only apply to modern times. But, but there were other words uh, in, in, that were used uh, to describe these people in, in, in more ancient texts, very ancient texts. And, um, and, and they used things like people who you know, would seek out profit and the like. But, um, but they, they tended, uh, again, to be not applicable or not helpful if you wanted to find entrepreneurs in anthropological records or in archaeological records. How do you spot an entrepreneur in, in the, the rubble of an archaeological excavation? Well, fortunately, there are a lot of brilliant archaeologists that have spotted key components of what it takes to be an entrepreneur that ultimately enabled this creation of a definition that spans all times, all cultures. It's completely unbiased. It's universal. It can apply on Mars as well as here. And that is that an entrepreneur is someone that exhibits th three uh, behaviors. First is they are, they are self-directed and, uh, supplying for themselves and for their families. So, so they decide what they're going to do. They're not directed by other people. The second thing is that they have a, a skill and they, a, they perfect a skill that others around them, their neighbors and the like, find valuable and would like to benefit from. And the third thing that they do is that they the entrepreneur entices others to engage in exchange so that they can get valuable things in return for their special skills. So it's those three things. So you're looking for those three things. And archaeologists and sociologists and anthropologists have figured out how to tell when that is happening precisely, even from stone, <laughs> you know, uh, debris and I mean you 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 go back uh, as you say I mean long back in the history over the part you look I mean over the past 9,000 years and uh, I'm curious to know because you, you discussed that in the book but I, I think our listeners will be curious to know who, who was the world's first entrepreneur I probably shouldn't have been surprised but I was surprised that it was somebody that made jewelry okay so 
9,000 years ago, there was this very small hunter-gatherer tribe, basically a, a family unit, and they wintered in this green area of what is now Eastern Jordan, you know, normally a pretty hot area, but in the winter, this area was, was cooler with water. And there was this marble outcrop near where they, they uh, wintered. And it had beautiful different colored stones. And what they did is that they set up what we would recognize as a factory. Okay, an assembly line to take pieces of this marble that they had chiseled out and to make it into an assortment of different beads and pendants. Now, so, so you had a selection. You, there were the small size, the medium size, the pendant with, you know, this size and that size. So, so, and, and they made them over and over and over again. The, you know, several of them would sit around a flat rock that they had smoothed out so that they could, you know, uh, form the smooth surfaces so they could uh, drill a hole into the pendants and, and the like. And they were making thousands of these things. And they were trading them for goats and sheep from, from 100, more than 100 miles away in order for them to have a much richer diet than they would have otherwise. Uh, an an unmis unmistakable, you know, entrepreneurs. <laughs> and uh, this is a good story of it. And, and as you said before, and as you write in the book, the, the archaeological record really proves that entrepreneurship eventually develops in all urban cultures throughout the world. And why do you think that is? Well, because entrepreneurs pr provide us what governments can't or don't want to. So it, as, as, you know, culture urbanizes, right? Uh, hierarchies form and the power elite, you know, decides, you know, what's best for them to offer the, the, their, their citizens or the general population. Right. And um, sometimes they, you know, centralize and collect, you know, all the value that they can and redistribute it. Sometimes they're more, you know, uh, laissez faire. But in all cases, the governments are not able to give the people everything that they want. And, and so you get these self directed individuals that realize that there's un this unmet need and they're willing to go and develop the skills to provide that all types of skills. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's why even when rulers try to get rid of the entrepreneurs, they're unable to because the people want what they provide. And one of the latest examples of that is, is technology, of course. And in the book, you compare Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley, which I think is very interesting and probably something very few in investors think about today. Yeah. Can you please tell us a bit more about this? Well, actually, uh, I, I like an even older example that I use in the book uh, of, of what is an exact copper age 
analog to Silicon Valley. So it's this place called Sheikmin. It's in the northern Negev Desert. Okay, and it, this is 4000 BC that we're talking about. And the hot new technology of 4000 BC is copper and being able to refine copper and make it into tools. Nobody had seen anything like that. This, this was totally amazing, just like smartphones, you know, <laughs> and, or, or, or the transistor. And, and, and so, of, of course, people, you know, that, that learned about this, knew that it was valuable. They sort of kept it secret. But in the village, you know, people would learn about it. It was one third of the entire village <laughs> basically picks off a portion of this process of making copper tools and they start specializing in the, in the initial refinement, the, the next steps of refinement, the molding, the, the pounding. Each one sort of does their own uh, you know, special uh, part of that. And they produce the tools that then you, you find throughout the Levant or, you know, the, the, the Near East there. And, 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 and there's a reason. There's a reason that you see this pattern over and over again. It's not, that, that's the earliest sort of, you know, concentration, archaeological concentration from 6,000 uh, years ago. But you find it over and over again. And, and by looking at these concentrations and how they appear and pop up, what you start to see are the underpinnings of how entrepreneurs become successful, how what they offer scales up and starts impacting more and more people, how, how it evolves from these enclaves into other enclaves, um, how it starts impacting the world on a scale that is really far beyond any one individual entrepreneur could do. And your book is full of all these captivating stories from history. And we really recommend everyone to buy the book, of course, to, to read all of them. Uh, but I would like to talk about one of them, uh, which was one of the first entrepreneurs of America. And that is Cornelius Vanderbilt Jr. And I think that is a really nice story. What, what was different about his style of entrepreneurship compared to the previous ones? Yeah, so, so Cornelius Vanderbilt was, was born in America to, to Dutch parents. Um, but, but America was, was just becoming independent. America was formed by mostly entrepreneurs. People that came to America ultimately didn't bring their businesses with them, uh, didn't bring their inheritance with them. They weren't the nobles or the like. Uh, and so they, they had to create a business to support themselves. And so even in the people signing the Declaration of Independence or forming the Constitution, the majority of these people were entrepreneurs. And, 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 and 
and that's represented in American culture by um, very little regulation on commerce and exchange. Um, and, and this was an environment in which Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, grew up in. Nonetheless, in, in that time, uh, there in America, the, the people that were already successful entrepreneurs had, had a deference to one another. And so competition was, uh, let's say, gentlemanly. Okay. Uh, you, you didn't go out and try and get somebody else's customers, much less try and run them out of business. That, that just wasn't gentlemanly. And if you aspired, you know, there wasn't nobility in America, but there was still, you know, being invited to, you know, join the clubs and, and, and the like. Well, Cornelius Vanderbilt didn't care about any of that. He was, he was gruff. He wasn't educated at all, uh, at all. And to him, entrepreneurship was about competition and winning. And he, he was fortunate to be his, his first ventures were funded by some wealthy people that allowed him to uh, help them literally destroy monopolies in America, all the way up to the Supreme Court ruled on, on how Vanderbilt was, was destroying monopolies and that it was okay to do that, that it was actually the right thing to do. And, and from that moment, uh, it became an extremely tough competitive environment. I, I call it sort of the golden rule, uh, you know, strategy, you know, basically the, the one that can invest the most uh, into a business can outlast the competition and run everybody else out of business. So, so he destroyed monopolies, but he, he, he was fine creating them by, because nobody could compete with them. But, uh, but they weren't sort of official monopolies. And, um, and there's this one instance where he, he, he basically runs an entire railroad company out of business by ref refusing uh, to pick up their, their freight uh, because he, he, he controlled all the freight lines into New York City, the harbor, the railroads, everything coming into New York City. And that was the biggest depot for trade going to Europe and the like. So there was all this trade that the railroads were bringing from the, from the new West. And, and, you know, he doesn't like this guy that's competing with him. He stops picking up that um, freight. Of course, it's winter time. There are passengers on these trains as well. Women with their children, they're forced to carry their baggage across 
the Hudson River in a blizzard. It's, it is, you know, this is brutal, you know, retaliation, uh, commercial retaliation. And around what year is this? 1860s. And how did this change the, the landscape for the coming generations? Well, the, the, the government looked into it, was appalled, and, but decided to not create any laws to prevent this. And so basically that sent the message that uh, you take, as an entrepreneur, you take matters into your own hands. You don't wait for, for the legal system to rule on the contract and, and whether or not you broke the contract. You, you, you retaliate with full force immediately in an entrepreneurial manner. It also basically says that entrepreneurs are much better at regulating entrepreneurs than governments are. Right. And which entrepreneurs have you seen after him that has behaved similar or, or even, even more brutal, if there are any such examples? Well, um, John D. Rockefeller, who was a generation um, younger than uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, although they did know one another, um, took it to a new level. And Cornelius Vanderbilt sort of was the person that, that controlled transportation um, to, to a very large extent. Uh, but John D. Rockefeller ultimately controlled an entire industry vertically, and that was oil. And so he started with the refineries, and he used Cornelius Vanderbilt tactics to run his comp competitors out of business or to buy them out. But, but he didn't stop at just refinery. <laughs> he, he, he did distribute oil distributors. He did oil pipelines. He did, you know, byproducts of, of oil. And, and he, he didn't stop. And, and, and so he, he took it to a new extreme level. Uh, that then became the norm. And a lot of people copied John D. Rockefeller in trying to create these, these um, vertical uh, dominances in things like um, whiskey or rope, making ropes or uh, the like. Of course, they did that so well and to such an extent and so brutally that ultimately uh, some journalists uh, thought that they, these people were acting in an unsocial fashion, wrote articles about them, and the U.S. passed their uh, antitrust acts that said, no, you, you, you can't just run people out of business. So... Another entrepreneur then comes into the picture to provide the next type of strategy that ultimately backfires on entrepreneurs. So this is J.P. Morgan, and he he's, has you know become the most successful financier in America. 
And he's done that by basically helping railroads that overexpanded, and the entrepreneurs that had, you know, overexpanded their railroads and went bankrupt. And JP Morgan would restructure these, would you know, bring in the new money to restructure them. There were so many of them, there was a lot of business. And, and he became the, the financial king. And he decides that, um, that he's going to restrict competition by buying out entrepreneurs and forming bigger companies that he's going to have be professionally managed. He's an entrepreneur, but he's not going to do the management. He's just going to do the financing. And so he, he is the one that finally establishes the cult of the professional manager and the cult of the big business. Entrepreneurs now feel, can feel that the environment is turning against them. The, the government is really supporting the big businesses and not the, the startups, not the innovators. And so we have, that leads into a period in America of about 70 years where uh, big businesses tried to control uh, innovation through patents, uh, through uh, coercion, but also by them slowing down the pace of in innovation uh, so that all their assets could be more efficiently used. And that was what the professional managers decided to do. And what we still teach in business school <laughs> to a great extent. It's very interesting. Uh, and after those 70 years, wh what changed that behavior and made the entrepreneurs come back? Uh, what made the entrepreneurs come back was um, that venture capital had uh, gained an, enough of a niche that it could provide financing to the new world of electronics that was enabled by the transistor. And that, combined with the fact that the, the pioneer of the transistor who uh, invented, was one of the co-inventors, was such a terrible leader and manager that all his brilliant staff rebelled and left him. And this was in what we call Silicon Valley today. And there was a, just enough money around to fund their laboratories so that they could work much faster than any of the big businesses that were uh, playing around with this new transistor invention. And, and that was the sort of cat that got out of the bag that showed how the combination of entrepreneurial venture capitalists could support technology-enabled entrepreneurs to innovate and grow much faster than IBM or Philips or all of these huge conglomerates that tried to, to do the same thing. 
and this is in the 1960s? Uh, 1960s and early 70s. I think uh, an interesting pivot there is, uh, I mean, we, we come into the, the concept of competitive dynamics, which is a big thing for, for us as investors. We often speak about, I mean, for example, economies of scale and network effects and so on. And, and you have these concepts of scaling supply and scaling demand. And I mean, scaling demand, what we hear about today and, and also a lot in the venture world is, is network effects. But what can we learn from the history of entrepreneurship when it comes to scaling demand for an innovation? Well, so scaling demand becomes incredibly important for entrepreneurs once their idea takes hold and they do this uh, initial scaling of supply, the supply, to the point where they realize, hey, I need to find more customers. Okay, I, I know how to satisfy the customers that are around me and nearby, doing a good job, but I, I need more customers. Th this is a historical problem show in uh, that people, you know, entrepreneurs were scaling demand all, all you know, back in ancient times, but, um, but entrepreneurs have, have gotten good at scaling demand in more recent times by understanding technology, particularly psychology, to the point where it's about getting people addicted. And today there's even a, a, a science of that persuasion technology that, can, that tells entrepreneurs that want to spend time learning that, uh, these techniques, what colors, how quickly to refresh the displays, um, and, and all these things that ultimately um, create this um, subconscious bond. It's not really an emotional bond, but it's a subconscious bond uh, that literally ties into our, our brain waves with what the product or service that they're offering. In, 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 in video game design, for example, the, there are secret parts of their programs that can sense when you're getting a little tired and will make it a little easier for you to get to the next level or to get to the next, you know, treasure chest or something like that. So to keep you engaged for that, that extra level, and then you sort of get the high from getting that and you're, you're in for another hour. Uh, so this, this is very subtle. It's very persuasive. It, it adds dramatically to the revenues and the success you know, of who, who wins are these entrepreneurs that know how to scale demand. It, it's nefarious. But I'm curious to know, I mean, taking a bit of a historical view and, and not 
in, in maybe not so historical as as you talk about nine nine thousand years ago, but I'm I'm speaking about like the last hundred years. If you look at companies, I mean brand brand companies such as Coke, for example. I mean, didn't they know a lot of this human psychology also, and and also the alcoholic brands and tobacco companies and so on? How does that differ from the technology companies today? Well, so, so th- their basis. Uh, it, isn't the the neuroscience, but it's the clinical psychology that was developed, uh, you know, Freud, Sigmund Freud and the like. And it was indeed a relative of Sigmund Freud that um, a a nephew, a double nephew uh, of Sigmund Freud, uh, who created brand, who created the understanding of brand, but it came out of his practice as a propaganda propagandist in World War I, utilizing what he had learned from his uncle about how, how brain works. So this was clinical psychology. So, so and this was right after World War I. And he literally said, hey, you know, we're learning how to mass produce. We're going to have to learn how to massively create demand. And propaganda technology is, is going to be extremely useful. Um, the, the entrepreneurs that copied his techniques never wanted to use the word propaganda. But this gentleman, Edward Bernays, he, he was proud of the fact that, that his insights came from propaganda. So he wrote a book and he even titled it Propaganda. Uh, but... He's the one that basically associates products with with sex, with um, with um, uh, you know uh, status, uh, all of those things. Um, he he's very famous for his campaigns uh, that got women to s- smoke cigarettes because it was considered masculine at the time, and he's the one that basically. S- you know, associated cigarette smoking with um, becoming slender and uh, and also as empowerment. That's, uh, you know, uh, this was as women were, uh, you know, campaigning to get more political power and the like. Well, you should be smoking a cigarette. And, and he did it in, in you know, w- ways that uh, w- weren't clear but the associations were clear enough that it worked on a massive scale. And, he, it, and he's associated for many others, but um, it, it's fascinating what he, what he did. And that, that rule, demand creation, this uh, scaling demand for the period right after World War I to uh, the current, you know, last 10, 15 years of more neuroscience scaling demand. And if we segue from scaling demand to scaling supply, you also write a lot about that in the book. And this one title that stayed with me is this horrifying one named Slavery Scaled, uh, where we learn about the entrepreneur James Drax and how he scaled up the sugar production on Barbados. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this and what we can learn about the consequences of this? Yeah, that that took uh, quite a bit of digging. and and I was 
amazed and horrified at it. But this gentleman has had an immense uh, impact on, on how we organize our businesses, how we think about our employees uh, to this day. Um, and he, he was a very ambitious person who left England because there wasn't enough uh, opportunity for him. And he did a very risky thing. He went on, he, he was a colonist uh, who was on the first boatloads of, of colonists on what was then an uninhabited island in the Caribbean, Barbados, that had just recently been discovered by somebody who was blown off, uh, you know, off uh, course by a hurricane. And, and, and so this co entrepreneurial co company recruits 50, 50 men to go colonize this, this island. And it's a, it's a big struggle, but this one gentleman, he's the most ambitious, he's the most resourceful, he's the one that survives a lot of the hardship. They're making cotton and on Barbados, copying what's being done up in the colonies in America, but that's not good enough for him. And so he, he goes and, you know, to Brazil to learn how to make sugar. And sugar is a product. It's not just a plant that you, um, you know, that you cultivate and then, and then uh, harvest. And so it, it requires manufa manufacturing processes and refining and, you know, quality control and the like. And, and what, what he realizes is that if he's going to be as rich as he can, he needs to scale up the manufacture of sugar from wh where it was historically at that moment. We're talking about uh, 1640 and, um, and it, where sugar production was relatively small scale. He's a very ambitious guy. He's, he's savvy to what's going on. He invites a, a Dutch engineers to come to Barbados to build him a windmill, a windmill that can crush sugarcane far faster than any, anything that, yeah, any crusher that has been before. And, and, and he realizes, well, if I can crush this much sugar cane this quickly, I need extensive lands, which he was able to, to, to get. But more importantly, I need hundreds and hundreds of slaves, 500 slaves. He doesn't, he doesn't buy slaves like everybody else has up to that point, which is you go to the auctioneer and you buy I'll buy two, you know, this person and that person. And so you go home with four extra slaves. No, he contracts sl slaves to be delivered to Barbados by the hundreds, by the boatloads. He, he has just single-handedly increased the scale of slavery, of these transatlantic slave trade by more than an order of magnitude more than order of magnitude. 
And he shows how you can organize the slaves, how you can organize the sugar production, and how you create these hierarchies of supervisors and financial controls and, and also production controls. He's, he's really, he's brilliant at this. Word gets out that there's this guy, James Drax. Boy, he's minting money. He's making the most sugar and the highest quality sugar. And books are written about the technique. And those become the standards that the, these books are copied almost verbatim over and over again by people that claim that it's their, you know, uh, suggestions or the like. But it's, it's just verbatim what, what, what's the description of James Drax's system. And that has become the basis for how we organize our companies, how we treat our employees. They're not, no longer slaves. Okay. But it's basically employees have to fend for themselves for many aspects of their own, you know, um, safety and, and health and the like. And that's just the, the way we accept it. And, and, and that's the moment. That's just the person <clears throat> that, that set these standards, that defined how it could be done. And a nice pivot from, from that, uh, I mean, Quite horrible story, but but also interesting case study uh, is. Uh, I mean, I get your overall purpose of the book is, is stimulating good and sustainable entrepreneurship, um, and um, one remedy that you that you describe is uh, that we should rather incentivize entrepreneurs to do good uh, rather than punish those who do bad. Uh, can you please expand on that? Yeah. So so. For a very long time, rulers and governments have tried to get their entrepreneurs to behave or to uh, not stir up political trouble. Uh, but, but, but they do. Um, and, but governments have been ineffective. They've tried over and over again. And, but entrepreneurs are, are wily and they, are good at getting around rules and regulations. Uh, they just are. The, the, but entrepreneurs all love to be recognized for their successes and for what they do. It's more important to them than the profits. If you look at the historical record, they're more driven by their own self-created status than they are by making another, <laughs> you know, doubling their profits. It's, it's the recognition. So the, 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 the problem is we don't recognize our entrepreneurs enough for, for what they've accomplished. And I was shocked by that. So in studying entrepreneurs, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, there are all these famous entrepreneurs and they get a lot of media attention and the like. Um, so I, I, I assumed, hey, this was already, you know, big enough in, in the media. 
But it's not the case. It's actually not big enough. <laughs> not big enough because it's the billion other entrepreneurs on the planet and all their innovations and how all those innovations are <clears throat> building up to create things that we want and we need that we're not getting from our, you know, any other way. And, and it's those entrepreneurs that are not being recognized for the impact, the, the critically important impact, the impact that our lives, the world would be, wouldn't be an interesting place to be or a healthy place, as healthy a place to be without. But the problem is that there are also unintended consequences. And we've tried, you know, to sort of uh, reprimand our entrepreneurs when they stir up this trouble. But we've never, or very few instances, have we tried to entice the entrepreneurs, just like they entice us, entice them to be just slightly better citizens and give them that status, but give the status to the ones that actually, you know, treat their employees very well <laughs> and, and, and d don't throw their waste into the river <laughs> uh, with, without, you know, uh, refining it first. Um, and, and that is what will have the biggest impact uh, on making entrepreneurs even more important in helping our planet become sustainable, more equitable, just, you know, all the good things. Because the entrepreneurs, they're, they're the greatest source of innovation. We have no choice. We, they are the ones that are going to solve these problems. And another way that you that you discuss uh, around in incentivizing entrepreneurs is uh, through subsidies. And uh, I was uh, thinking about the examples in example in in Delhi uh, that is called the cobra effect. So Delhi in India had problems with with cobras and decided to pay for cobra skins, and this led to a lot of breeding of cobras. And then when the subsidies stopped, the breeders let the cobras free, and the problem became even worse than, than before. <laughs> so so uh, with this example in mind, how do you make sure to capture these uh, second order effects when uh, developing subsidies? Maybe a bit of a too big pro big question, but interesting to hear your view. Well, uh, so um, I, 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 I want to clarify, it's really not subsidies, okay? Uh, but it's, it's the profit guarantee that can create these uh, massing of entrepreneurs in a new area. The swarms, as you call them. The I swarms, think. yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's what entrepreneurs do, where they see somebody, one entrepreneur has, has you know, been very successful, I'm going to copy it. And then it gets copied and replicated. And in the replication, it gets innovated and, and, and the scale becomes massive. Uh, so go governments can create swarms 
by creating just an initial um, one or two entrepreneurial successes. The, the, the problem with the Cobra one is that you don't create the profit after the first few have successfully shown how to do it the way you know it was originally intended. If if you keep that the the the, the profit lure out there, then they'll find all the unintended ways for, to achieve that profit. That a, a a good example of a profit lure that we all you know have benefited from would be uh, Operation Warp Speed with the COVID vaccine, and and the fact that the the COVID vaccines really came out of entrepreneurs. Moderna is an entrepreneurial company still run by its original founders. BioNTech in Germany, entrepreneurial company still run by its its founders, and and they you know uh, properly teamed up with you know <laughs> Pfizer and the like. To, to access, you know, the existing supply chains, but it, it, it was entrepreneurs, and the entrepreneurs did it and could do it, and could do it quickly, because there was the the guarantee that if you do this, you'll get an order for a billion units, and that'll make sure you're profitable and very profitable. But that wasn't promised to everybody. Right, so the, the fifth and sixth person, you know, uh, entrepreneurs to get their COVID vaccines, or the big companies that are always late to the game, and and you know, they didn't necessarily get their big orders because the entrepreneurs got there first. So, so that's that's the difference. That, that's how. The understanding of how entrepreneurship actually works can benefit governments in ha in how to get entrepreneurs helping <laughs> uh, with fewer, many fewer unintended consequences. I mean, uh, in in financial markets currently, we hear a lot about the concept of ESG. Uh, I don't know how familiar are you with that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, social good, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I couldn't help uh, thinking about ESG when I when I read the book and, and how you relate, uh, I mean, how do you think it relates to, to your views on, on good entrepreneurship? Because I I think the the, in, the intention of ESG is more or less that, that businesses should be, uh, I mean, to think about the environment, social consequences, and and the strong having strong governance structures, and I I think it's some some I mean in some way it relates to to your view on, on entrepreneurship, but I, I I would like to dig deeper into that. I'm curious to to know your your view. So so ESG as a concept really applies to to the big businesses, the professionally managed businesses, and and are. Really, not something that's that entrepreneurs uh, necessarily care about. They can, again, you know, particularly if there's uh, this, this seeding of profitability to do 
certain um, uh, things that are social goods or environmental goods, the E and ESG. But um, but it's it's so, so it's 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 this myopia that governments tend to have in thinking that big business is business, and they forget about the entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs need to be different. They they need to be uh, there need to be different ministries in government that are focused on entrepreneurs. Yeah, big businesses, you know, that regulation and the like, yeah, you got to think about that. They're important, but they follow, follow slowly the entrepreneur. If you want things to change quickly, it needs to be done by seeding the entrepreneur. And they're totally capable of doing things for the social good, not just COVID vaccines, okay? But but they're, they can innovate how to clean up water or clean up air much faster than government labs or big businesses. To me, much of this comes down to having a long-term mindset. And that is something we have talked to many of our guests before and like the, the most successful companies usually have that that long-term mindset and and to me it comes down to that if you cut down all the trees on Barbados to make your sugar plantations then of course it, it will work for a, for some time but not not for a long time so so when you were a CEO of this publicly traded semiconductor company how did you deal with like this often short-termism that exists in the capital markets we had a set of values in the company and um, and to help our employees uh, remember these you know, short series of values, we, we, we turn them into a word, an acrostic. Uh, so the, the first letter of each of the values formed a word, not a real world word, but it was called tech plan. So we could refer to tech plan. I mentioned it because the T in tech plan said, Take a long-term view. <laughs> okay, so that that is like a, a mantra. <laughs> I still dream tech plan. <laughs> you know, the E is empower. You know, whatever C is communicate. You know, whatever. But tech plan. Take a long-term view. You have to if you're building a business that you want to to be around 50 years from now and 100 years from now. You take the short-term view, you'll, you'll get a short-term benefit, but you'll also get all these problems that, that come from that. And you'll leave yourself completely exposed and, and, and miss the, the other opportunities that take a longer time to, to ferment. We have to discuss your, I mean, we discussed it a bit in the beginning, but uh, I mean, your, um, that, that you came from uh, being a practitioner, you ran a public company, you started your own business, and uh, and then became a, a, a professor and, and are now is now teaching at, uh, at Princeton. Um, when I when I studied, uh, all my teachers were actually only, I mean, from academia, and I, I think I would have benefited from from having someone like you as a teacher. Um, 
I wanted to discuss uh, the concept that, that we hear about a lot is that young entrepreneurs, I think this is a Silicon Valley concept, but I, I want to ask you anyway, that they often quit school before they are finished to become entrepreneurs. Um, and I think I know the answer that you that you will give on, on, on that. But but secondly, and maybe more importantly, what do you think academia can, can bring to prospective entrepreneurs? Well, I, I think that academia has to be has to become more pragmatic in what it teaches and i think it needs academia in general needs to adopt more experiential learning pedagogies to ensure that their students are poised for success and uh And, and, and so universities can't, can't just be measured on, yeah, the students that graduate from our school have taken, you know, 35 classes or however many units and they pass them. And so they, they, they can write a decent, you know, letter and they, you know, know some basic history or, even computer programming. Um, I, I, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to place that learning in a context about how, how it gets utilized and, and how it ultimately hopefully benefits the world, hopefully benefits the student, the individual, <laughs> fairly quickly <laughs> after graduation. And, uh, and it, because that's that's the ultimate mission is to is to make successful citizens, to make our populations more more self sustaining and just and equitable and all of those things that we know we need to work on. Um, so so that needs to be the objective. Uh, You know, it's challenging for universities because they're not necessarily organized um, to change quickly uh, or, 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 you know, or change in a time period, time frame where even slow moving forces operate. Uh, I, I, I know and I, I, I am so thankful that the Princeton, you know, brought me in as a practitioner because they, they wanted to do this for more of their students. And they've enabled the area, the, 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 the group that I'm in, which isn't a academic department per se, but, but it has its whole faculty and staff. And our mission is to be that interface for the students and to teach them how to apply the critical thinking skills and add these other skills so that they immediately can impact the world. When you do that with the students, they stay, okay? They, they, they stay in school. But I, I teach a class literally that is for students that already have startups in, in school and the class gives them academic credit, but 
It's a very rigorous class that, that requires them to think deeply about their startup and what they're doing. And it requires them to get the skills that they lack that will cause them trouble or is already causing them trouble and to seriously, you know, practice and, and acquire those skills in, in a context where they know why and how. And so that, that's, that's a class. It's a useful class. It, it, it helps these student entrepreneurs immediately be more successful, but immediately more aware of the impact of what it is that they're doing and, and the potential unintended consequences that they can immediately, just by thinking about it, you know, uh, mitigate to the point where they don't have to worry that it's going to be a problem. I'm sure we have some listeners out there who are interested in, in taking your classes. <laughs> well, they have to be admitted to Princeton, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some, something else that you, I mean, apart from academia now, I'm, I pivot to, to role model, models, which is one of the other, I mean, remedies that you, that you speak about for, I mean, to create good entrepreneurs. Um, and... Um, I, I've heard you speak about that you hope that more people should strive to become Sam Walton, for example, instead of Elon Musk. Um, why do you think uh, Sam Walton is the better role mod model? Well, um, he was incredibly connected to both his customers and, and his employees. And the steps he took were deliberate, slowly evolved, in other words, carefully evolved, okay, to be beneficial for both the employee and the customers. He, he, he basically dedicated his life and encircled himself with others that dedicated them their lives to to doing this he 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 also set very high expectations of if we find something that we can do better let's do it quickly so so he had weekly meetings and and the you know, things were expected to change within the week, next week. You know, people had to report on it the next week, period. You know, it wasn't like, and, and, and if they needed to plan something out, yeah, that was done, you know, on Sunday, you know, before the, the work week started. And, and then, you know, pe people, you know, deployed and, 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 and made those changes. So he, he was able to create this organization on this such a large scale that could change so quickly. It was entrepreneurial, okay? And he didn't lose that. And, and yet he did it in a way where his customers benefited and his employees benefited. And, um, and, and that's why I think he's, you know, he ranks as a great all-time role model and entrepreneur. Yeah, and, and another inspiring person person was uh, John Patterson, and he is one of those uh, characters that uh, Charlie Munger calls an intelligent fanatic. And uh, 
Sean Edingsen, Ian Castle, they have written two timeless and great books about this topic of intelligent fanatics, which we discussed with Sean Edingsen in our very first episode here in the podcast, actually. And you, and in your book, you, you write that somebody needs to write an updated biography of John Patterson. He is the epitome of the larger-than-life cliché. So our listeners are, of course, very interested in reading and writing and investing in business. So, so please tell us why. Maybe there is someone who wants to write a book. About John Patterson, yeah, uh, because he he's he's the entrepreneur that really c- cracked the code on on business to business on B two B. He he did that by realizing that that B two B is different than what we call B two C. Um, that to appeal to the business owner, you have to appeal more broadly than just saying, you know, here's my product and this is how much it costs. And so he, he's the first one that, that, you know, dedicated himself to understand the, the, uh, the needs of business and the needs of business owners and to deliver products in a way that they could immediately use to improve their profitability. And out of that understanding came uh, all the sales techniques. He's sort of like the James Drax, but not as barbaric. Okay. Although he, he had his own barbarism as well. Okay. But he, he's the James Drax of, of, business to business and and so his sales methodologies that quite often cross the line of of being immoral but we've adopted into how how we run our businesses but but he he was he was this fanatic that actually had this empathy for for people. Uh, he was he was very good to his people until he decided that you you know were were no longer with him. Yeah. So if, if he felt that you um, were were no longer you know uh, mesmerized by by him and, and his personality then he he'd find a way to fire you but up to that point he he was very empathetic with his employees and he was very empathetic with his customers and cr was the name of the company right and CR, yes and exactly. was in, in the cash cash register business. So yeah. maybe someone uh, wants to write that kind of book, or, or do you want to write it? Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I certainly would hope to inspire somebody to write it. Uh, it'll be a great book. It'll be one of those classic biographies. He's such an interesting guy. And it's been great talking about your book, The Entrepreneurs. Uh, what other books on, on entrepreneurship do you recommend? Um, 
besides my other two, the startup leadership and building on bedrock. But um, so when people ask that, that, they're really expecting a Silicon Valley answer. Okay, because Silicon Valley is 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 the um, methodology that people that listen to your podcast uh, would aspire to, um, as opposed to what I, I call you know bedrock entrepreneurs that are really not so interested in in um, shooting for the moon using other people's money and failing fast if you have to. The, for the Silicon Valley uh, crowd, um, I, I, I think that um, Steve Blank's first book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, is actually a pretty good starting point, particularly because of the emphasis on the customer discovery, starting with really understanding the customer, getting up out of the seat, you know, actually meeting customers, talking to them, wanting to learn what they want and what they're not getting. So, so, so I direct a lot of my students, you know, to to that book. I, I like it a lot better than his second book, which is the Startup Owner's Manual, which uh, I find is a little too focused on uh, app-based, software-based type businesses and leaves leaves out people that are interested in um, product, actual, you know, manufactured product, and also quite a few different types of services. I think many of our listeners are, are value investors and are maybe not so interested in the, in the Silicon Valley uh, aspect mm-hmm. of things. Do you, do you have some, some book recommendations for them that they can learn about? Uh, entrepreneurship i i actually think that um where where i send my students is often to learn about ethnography and in a good introduction to ethnography um why? Because it's a great way to understand how to learn about your customers. And there, there's a book by uh, a former colleague of mine, uh, Sheila Pontus, and I'm I'm blanking on exactly what the title of uh, of the book is, but it's basically applied ethnography. It's a it's a book of of techniques that you use to learn about the customer. And it's just so useful and practical and so easy to read. And, you know, got lots of diagrams and and illustrations. And uh, you're not going to waste a moment of your time either in learning these things 
or applying these things. Maybe we should try to get her on the, the podcast in the future. <laughs> Would be interesting. Yes. <laughs> so Derek Lido, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Investing by the Books podcast to talk about you and, and your great book, The Entrepreneurs, which we think will come out uh, the same day that we release this episode. So, so please check out uh, Amazon. Uh, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Uh, I, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's been, it's been a, a, a wonderful hour and a half, but, uh, and we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and lastly, where can our audience follow you and all of your work? Well, I do have a website at, uh, that's DerekLido.com, one word, um, where I, I post, uh, you know, some, not, uh, not necessarily all of what I write and the like, but, uh, but, you know, j just put my name in your Google, you know, watch list and it'll come up. Uh, I write a lot of articles, not just books, and I'm a I'm asked to write uh, on a on a lot of subjects because this is applicable to a lot of subjects. So, so I have a hard time keeping up with putting it all in one place. I see, and you also have a Twitter account, right? I have a, a Twitter account at Derek Lido. Um, I not super active on on twitter uh I, I i tend to use linkedin as my social media platform so that would be if a listener wanted to connect with me there i'm, I'm very open and and look look to connecting with all people from all around the world perfect we'll put that in the show notes thank you so much okay my pleasure thank you thank you derek Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.